I'm going to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. There's a story about an airplane pilot. It's based out of Nashville. Who uh, His routine is he, he kind of flies smaller jets, popping around Tennessee. And uh, one day he was, he was flying. Um, he would see kind of the same route every week. And he's flying with his co-pilot, and as they take off, they, they kind of fly over the countryside, and they fly over a lake. And he told the co-pilot, look down, you see that, that lake that's down there? He said, I, I grew up on that lake. I used to go, in the summertime, I'd, I'd be on the lake every single day with my brothers, and we would fish, and we'd just be on our boat fishing. And he said, we, we knew that this lake was kind of in the flight path of, of this airport. And so we, as we were fishing, my, you know, I, I would always just lay down on my back and look up into the sky and see these jets flying overhead. And he said, when I, was a, when I was a child and as I got older and was a teenager, I just had this dream that I wanted to someday fly those jets, be, be a pilot. And, and so as, we, as, 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 I would, as I would fish, I, I had this dream and this goal in my mind to, to get to this place where I could fly those jets. And the co-pilot looked at him and said, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. You've, you've reached your goal. You are, now, you are now a pilot, and you're flying over these lakes. That's, that's just an incredible story. And the pilot said, yeah, it is, but now that we fly, he said, I fly this same routine every, every single week, and I fly over this lake, and all I can think about is how badly I want to be on that lake <laughs> in a boat fishing. That's my dream. If I could just get there. Uh, as I hear that story, it kind of just reminds me of this, uh, this idea of contentment that we've been talking about over the last month and a half. We've been talking about living a life of contentment, and we've been going through this series called You Are Here, Moving Beyond My Unsettled Life. We've been talking about how we, uh, we live in a city, Phoenix, that's getting hot, hotter by the day, and uh, everyone's kind of just ready to leave town to take a break, to get a break from the heat. But we also live in a culture in uh, what's true of our city and the season is kind of true of our culture. We live in this culture that's just kind of discontent with life constantly. We kind of focus on uh, the things that we're not, and so we're discontent in our jobs, we're discontent in relationships, we're discontent with our boss, we're discontent at home, uh, we're discontent with our sports teams, if you live in Phoenix. Uh, we live in this culture of, of discontent. I read this article today that uh, was talking about this idea of discontent in our culture, and it says that our culture is full of this inextinguishable discontent. And I thought about that phrase, this inextinguishable discontent. It's like the pilot that we have this goal in our mind that we just want to get to this place, and then we get there, and it doesn't deliver what we thought it was going to deliver, and we desire something else. We live in this culture of discontent. And so we've been looking at this book of Philippians, this letter from the Apostle Paul, that speaks into this topic. And as we've looked at Philippians, what we find is that the Apostle Paul, he's actually writing from prison. He's writing from jail. And he's writing uh, to a church in Philippi uh, that's not in prison. They're free. And what we find is, as he has this terrible circumstance where he's, he's trapped in jail, Paul has this attitude of joy and contentment. And as he's writing to the people in Philippi, he's instructing them on what does it mean to experience life to the full here, to have a life full of joy, to be content with where God has you. 
And I think that what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi is important for us, specifically in this culture of inextinguishable discontent. So I want to kind of continue talking about this uh, today in Philippians chapter 4. If you could turn to Philippians 4, 11 through 13. As Paul continues in this letter, he finally gets to this point where he says in verse 11, he says, I am not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's probably one of the more familiar passages in Scripture, specifically verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. But Paul's speaking about this idea of being content in whatever the circumstances. Whether he's hungry or well-fed, whether he has plenty, whether he's poor, in whatever the circumstances, he speaks of this idea of being content. What Paul's doing here is actually borrowing a word from their culture. Contentment was kind of this actually loaded expression as Paul writes, the idea of being content. He's actually borrowing from Greek philosophy. And remember, at this time period, the Greeks are very influential Western thought. You've got Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. As Paul's writing, he actually is quoting these Greek philosophers known as the Stoics. You ever heard of the Stoics? Yeah, what does it mean to be Stoic? It means to what, not have emotions, right? To be, to be steady. And as Paul is speaking into this culture in Philippi, he's actually bringing up kind of the language that the Stoics would use. For the Stoics, contentment was kind of like the ultimate reality. If we could just get to this place where we were content. So the word content that Paul used is this Greek word, utarkis. Utarchus is the word. And it's this stoic word that means entirely self-sufficient. You've basically like risen above all the circumstances in this world and you're self-sufficient. You're kind of beyond your circumstances. For the stoics, this was kind of the goal of living. And they went about this in two ways. The first thing that the stoics would do is they proposed to eliminate all desire. For them to reach this state of contentment, their thought was just to eliminate desire. And so they would say contentment consists in uh, not possessing more, not how much you possess, uh, but contentment was all about desiring less in your life. And that's kind of like, you know, kind of counter the way that we think in this culture. We think if we want to be content, there's certain things that we need to add to our life to make it better. And for the Stoics, what they would say is contentment is found not in adding things to your life, but in limiting your desires. And we hear that and we think, there's probably some truth in that, right? That's some some good thinking. If we we could, you know, just kind of limit, like, what we desire in life, there's, there's contentment that could be found there. Socrates was asked, who is the wealthiest person? And Socrates says, you know, he who is content with the least. For contentment is nature's wealth. So the Stoics had this idea of, we want to get to this place of contentment, and it's not from getting more stuff, it's from limiting what we desire. Like, some good thinking. But then the Stoics also said, they proposed to eliminate all emotion. 
And so they would say, this is when we try to limit our desires, we, we, we eliminate our feelings, our emotions. If we just don't feel certain things, uh, then, then we'll find contentment. And so what would happen is the Stoics, for them, love was dismissed and caring was forbidden. For them, they felt no emotion about anything. I think this is where the Germans came from. I don't know. (laughs) One philosopher said that the Stoics made the heart a desert and called it peace. And so we see that there's probably some wisdom in how they approach life, but there's also, uh, we also see some blind spots in that. We're created as humans with emotion and with desires, and desires aren't negative things. God created us to live a certain kind of life in this world where we're completely engaging and fully present with the world around us and that we're enjoying the the pleasures that God has given us within the right boundaries of how we're created. And the Stoics are almost like removing this human element to gain this contentment. So for the Stoics, though, the way they went about this contentment is through human achievement. It was all about controlling your own psyche. If I could just uh, control my psyche, then I could be content. If I can limit my desires and, and limit my emotions. And for Paul, it wasn't contentment that he talks about in this passage. This isn't about human achievement. It's about this divine gift that God gives us to be content. For the Stoics, it was all about self-sufficiency. And for Paul, it was all about he was God-sufficient, relying on God for everything. The Stoics would say, I will learn contentment by a deliberate act of my own will. And as Paul sets up this idea of contentment, he says, I can do all things through Christ who infuses his strength in me. Paul says this idea that the Stoics are promoting in our culture about contentment. Yeah, some of that is good, but it's not done by our own accomplishments. It's done by what God has done for us in this world. When I think of this phrase, I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's been like a very important verse in my life. And when I was younger, you know, it was more usually relating to like sports. I knew I could achieve something because God's going to give me the strength to do it. And that's part of it. That's true. God gives us the strength to accomplish things. But I think it's interesting in the context that Paul's talking about here, this idea of contentment. What he's talking about here is not that God will give us the strength to achieve something, but Paul's talking about that even when we don't achieve something, even if we're not successful, we have this contentment in life because of what God has done. So that helps us, no matter what our circumstances are, Whether we're losing or succeeding, losing or winning, failing or succeeding, hungry or full, God gives us the strength to find this contentment. Are we okay where we are in life? We move beyond our unsettled life when we embrace this contentment that Paul talks about here. So why is contentment a problem? Why is it such a big deal it's a big deal in our culture, right? Because we live in, uh, we live in a place where we're allowed to pursue freedom. We're allowed to pursue uh, wealth. And those are all great things. They also have unintended consequences. 
But what we find is Paul speaking to the Philippians is that it's also an issue 2,000 years ago in Philippi. Contentment's an issue. Really, we find that contentment uh, has been an issue from the beginning of humanity. And as we look at the creation stories that give us kind of an identity of how we're wired as human beings, the first couple chapters of Genesis, what we find is that contentment is a problem. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, there's this beautiful Hebrew poem about how the world has been created and how God has created it. And he's created humanity. And he's created us in his image. And in this story in Genesis 3, in this beautiful poem, uh, we find that God uh, creates humanity and he places them in this garden. And we have Adam and we have Eve. And God says that it's good and they have peace and they have shalom. And in this story, we know that there's a serpent that enters it. We know it as Satan, uh, the great liar, who comes into this story. And he tells two lies that I think have haunted humanity ever since. As Satan enters into this story, and he starts to dialogue with Adam and Eve, the first lie that he tells them is that God is holding out on you. That God is holding out something. He's actually keeping you from fulfilling, from an even more fulfilling life. That God is hiding something from you. That lie still haunts us today. Because what happens is when we start to believe this lie that, that God's holding out on us and that, that the peace, the shalom that's in the garden uh, isn't enough for us, we start searching for that contentment outside of God. We start searching for fulfillment in things outside of God. And the second lie that Satan tells Adam and Eve in the story is that if you could only have this thing, and for them that was this piece of fruit, if you could only have this, then you'd be happy. Then you'd be happy. If you could only have that, then you would be complete. Then your life would be more fulfilling. Then you'd be content. And that lie still haunts us all the time because there are these things placed in our own lives. It's like, if I could just get this, then my life will be great. We all have those things. Maybe it's a certain promotion at work. Maybe it's a relationship. We all have these things that if we just, they become like, they become our desire. And we think, if I can only get to that point or get that thing, then my life is going to be great. What we find is so often we're lied to. These things that we put so much of our desire in and hope in don't deliver. And we're left just as discontent. The lie that Satan tells is he promises, he overpromises, and he underdelivers. And we still live in that tension all the time. There are these things that we want, we think they're going to make us happy, and they underdeliver. They underdeliver. We believe these lies. God is holding out on you, and if you only had this, then you would be happy. I think one of the best examples of this is uh, from the philosopher and becoming uh, more of a theologian himself, uh, Jim Carrey. We all know Jim Carrey, great comedian. Uh, he talks about this kind of angst of having things that are overpromised and underdeliver. I don't know if you guys saw his speech at the Golden Globe, uh, Golden Globes a couple years back. 
Uh, but he gets up and he starts, he starts to, to speak. And if you ever get a chance to YouTube this, it's amazing. But he gets up and he's got this suit on. Um, and, uh, but but he, he, his hair's a mess. His beard's grown out. And he just looks tired. And he gets up there and he starts speaking. And there's a seriousness to Jim Carrey that you usually don't see. And as he starts speaking, there's kind of this, you kind of like can hear all these celebrities in the crowd listening to him as they start to kind of read, trying to read what he's saying. And he gets up and he's real serious. And then as he starts to talk, everyone's just assuming that he's joking. And so as Jim Carrey starts to speak, he starts to say, he gets up and he says, I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And the crowd starts to laugh. And he says, you know, when I go to sleep at night, and then there's this pause, and they say, oh, here it is. Jim's in, he's in character right now. He's going to tell a joke. He says, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And the crowd erupts in laughter. And then Jim starts to play off the crowd, and he says, when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner actor Jim Carrey. At this point, the crowd says, oh, he's in character. He's joking. And they're cracking up laughing. And then he says, because then I would be enough. And he pauses. And he goes on to say, and it would finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. And then the crowd's like, kind of silences a bit. And there's this like nervous laughter. What is Jim Carrey doing? And some people don't know if he's joking or if he's in character, but they're looking at this man, and he just looks empty. He looks tired. He looks exhausted. And it looks like he has this hidden pain behind his eyes. And he says, and I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. Later on in an interview, Jim Carrey said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dream so they can see that it's not the answer. This is a man who's uh, probably experienced everything that we'd want to experience. Fame, fortune, wealth. And I think it's important to note that fame, fortune, wealth are not bad things in themselves. It's great to have ambition. It's great to have driven, be driven. But when we put our hope in those kind of things, we're left unfulfilled. And at the Golden Globes, you have this great, prestigious actor standing in front of famous actors saying, I'm empty. I'm empty. This lie from Satan continues to haunt us. So the question is, how can we be content, as Paul says? How is it that we can be content in all circumstances, whether or wealthy or poor, hungry or filled. What does it mean to be content? I want to suggest kind of four, four actions today that we need as we think about contentment, as we think about our unsettled life, as we think about this contentment. Contentment requires learning, forgetting, remaining, and seeking. Contentment requires learning, forgetting, remaining, and seeking. As Paul's talking about contentment, what he says is he's learned the secret of contentment. 
It's something that has, through his experiences, maturing in life, he's learned what it means to be content. The way I have kind of experienced this is, I remember when Marcy and I first got married, we'd go out to eat, we'd go to dinner, and uh, we, would, we would see like an older couple sitting next to us. And the, the woman might be reading a book, the man might be on his phone, and they'd just be sitting there in silence. I remember thinking like, they just, that's got to be miserable. I don't want to ever be like that, Marcy. I want to be the couple that's always engaged and always talking and enjoying each other's company. And we start having kids. And we're still having kids. We have three kids and a fourth kid on the way. And we were at lunch, we were at lunch and we saw a couple just sitting there in silence, this older couple. And I, I was looking at them, all of a sudden I realized something. I want to do that. I want to go to dinner with my wife and just sit and be quiet. And be okay with that. Our lives are so crazy. They're so noisy. They're so busy. I'm like, that couple, knows they've got it all together. They've learned the secret to be content, to just be in each other's presence and not have to entertain each other. And like, I think that's sometimes, there's this wisdom that comes in life when you start to see things and you realize, like, oh, they're actually content and happy. Not that I know. I mean, who knows what's going on? But boy, that sure sounds appealing, to just sit down in peace and quiet and enjoy each other's company without saying anything. I think contentment is learned. It's something that we, we have to learn in our lives. We develop it over time. Contentment requires learning. But contentment also requires forgetting. Forgetting. It requires learning, but it also requires uh, forgetting. In Philippians chapter uh, 3, Paul's uh, saying, uh, he continues to talk about this idea of contentment. He says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. He presses on. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Contentment requires forgetting because oftentimes in life, we're discontent because we think about the past, the glory days, how things used to be. We're constantly reminded of how, uh, if we, like, man, if we could just get back to what life used to be like. There's something that's interesting that happens with our human brains. Uh, because uh, I, I think we want to be hopeful, sometimes uh, the struggles of life are forgotten. And I'll tell you how I know this. Divya and Peter Yoder had a baby last week. And I don't know if you guys know Peter and Divya. They had their first son. Uh, we've had some people bring in the meals. We went and checked in on them uh, last week and to see how they're doing. And both of them have that shell-shocked look when you first have a child. Like, we're not sleeping. <laughs> like, we're tired. We're exhausted. And they're like, nobody warned us about this. Why didn't you tell us we're just not going to sleep? And Marcia and I were talking, we were thinking about it, and we're like, you forget when you have a child how you just don't sleep for, like, weeks, right? You, you almost, like, block that out. You remember the great things, but you don't remember how difficult it is when the child's up in the middle of the night. It's almost like you block that out of your memory. But having a child's difficult. It's really challenging. Those first couple weeks, you're just shell-shocked. And it's, it was this reminder, even as we get ready for our fourth child, is like, oh, no, it's coming. <laughs> We're not going to sleep. Oh. And you, you just forget those things. And, and I remember, like, hearing my parents saying, like, yeah, you just, 
It's one of those things where it's like the, the days are long and the years are short. You just forget. It's so hard when you go through it and you look back at it and you don't remember those challenging things. We have this tendency uh, to, to see the past with like kind of like rose-colored glasses. And so we miss, we long for the way things used to be. We long for the glory days, and that leads to our discontentment in the present. If I could just get back to how things were. If I could just get back to the way things were. I'm a, a seminary student right now. I'm a young, young pastor and at Fuller. And the president of Fuller just released this article talking about this kind of very, uh, this very subject of thinking about the past. And he says that, especially in their psychology department, they're talking about how people are, are discontent. They're always wanting to go back to the way things were. And he says they have this phrase that they use uh, when, when we get into this mindset. They say, things aren't like they used to be, and they never were. They never were like they used to be. I think that's interesting. Things aren't like they used to be, but they never were. There's, we need to have a short memory. We want to live in contentment. That doesn't mean that we didn't have a great past. But this ability to forget, we, we often think we want to forget the negative things in our life. And I'm not saying to forget the positive things are great memories. But sometimes we can't be content in the present moment because we're always looking backwards to this time in our life and everything was great. Paul says, forgetting what is behind, striving forward what is ahead. He presses on towards the goal. If we want to have contentment in life, we've got to be willing uh, to forget. And don't hear that for the wrong things. I'm not saying that we can't have great memories. There are great, wonderful memories. That is what life is made of. But we move forward trusting that we have hope for tomorrow. The third thing that we do, so we, contentment has to be learned Contentment requires forgetting. Contentment also uh, requires remaining. Remaining. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. Remaining in God. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage, he says, I'm glad in God, far happier than you would ever guess. Happy that you're again showing such strong concern for me. Not that you ever quit praying and thinking about me. You just had no chance to show it. Actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content, whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much. With much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. I love that. I'm glad in God. I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. This idea of being in God. When we think about uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we talk about this idea of having Christ in us. But throughout the New Testament, there's this phrase of being in Christ. Constantly, over and over again, we live life in Christ, in God, in Christ. It's remaining in him. In John 15, Jesus uses this metaphor of uh, the vine and branches. Jesus says that he is the vine and that we are the branches. And if we remain in him, we experience life. And he says, apart from him, we can do nothing. Contentment requires remaining in God. We talked the last couple of weeks about how our hearts are restless 
until they rest in thee. Contentment is found, life is found attached to the vine, the source of our life, who is God. We are spiritual beings as humans. We find contentment from God. Then finally, uh, contentment requires seeking. Seeking. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. As Jesus is speaking in this passage, he's on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about worry. He's talking about anxiety. He's talking about discontentment. And he finally says, seek first the kingdom, the ways of God. In everything that you do, in all of these things that you're worried about, discontent will take care of himself. And we seek God. As Paul's editing this letter to the Philippians, he says, And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. When we remain in God, when we seek God, the God who has unlimited resources meets us. He meets us when we seek him. So contentment, learning, forgetting, remaining, and seeking. We find contentment in God. God. As we close today, Tim's going to come up and Hannah's going to come up and they're going to close us as we get ready for communion. So we talk about this idea of contentment. Uh, We move from our unsettled life. We move from being dissatisfied to contentment. Uh, One thing to point out, there's a difference between uh, being discontent and being in a really unhealthy place in your life. If you're in an unhealthy place in life uh, that is uh, abusive in a way, um, the, the answer isn't just getting healthier. Uh, you need real help. And what I'm talking about today with contentment isn't about something that's, if you're just in this really unhealthy place, that you need help. Um, what I'm talking about with discontentment is this angst that we feel as a culture. And this angst that uh, wears us thin. It feels like our souls are decaying because we're constantly searching for something that's never going to deliver. So today as we talk about contentment in that way, this dissatisfied life, moving from dissatisfied to contentment, I just want to ask these four questions. What do you need to learn when it comes to contentment? Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. What is it that you need to learn? Maybe today that you would open up your heart and say, God, teach me. The second thing is, what do you need to forget? This requires wisdom and discernment, not saying that we throw out everything in our past. What are the things that are in your past that are causing you, keeping you from contentment today? Because you just want to keep going back. What do you need to do to remain in Christ, to remain in God? There's certain rhythms in your life that you need to change so that you can be more attached to the source of life. And then what do you need to seek? Maybe uh, you've been seeking all the wrong things and that today God just wants to rescue your ambition, wants you to be to strive and to be ambitious for the things that truly matter. Today as we move forward, 
towards communion, let's consider these questions. These, we consider our dissatisfied living to embrace the contentment that comes in life in Christ. Each week we close our sermon with communion. And communion is symbolic of this great work that God has done in our world. This great completion of what brings about our healing and restoration, which brings us back to peace. As we go to communion today, as we wrestle with these questions, let us be reminded of what God has done for us. We take a piece of bread and it represents the incarnation, that God became man, that he walked on earth, he experienced what we experienced. He took on flesh and blood. The bread represents this body of God that was broken open on the cross. The juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. We believe that this breaking open of his body and this pouring out of his blood brings about restoration and life eternal. Today as we go to communion, let's be reminded of this amazing work of God in our life. And then let's invite God to transform our lives. To put us back together. To bring about peace and contentment. Because when we do that, our lives become gifts to other people. So let's pray. Lord, Lord, we want to learn the secret of being content in all circumstances. Lord, we see that this just isn't a Phoenix problem. It's not just a North American problem. This is a human problem. There's this lie that has haunted our humanity. It has us chasing all sorts of things that are unfulfilling and don't really matter. We live in the angst of that tension. Today, Lord, as we consider our unsettled lives, we ask that you don't just change circumstances, although sometimes those need to be changed, Lord, but that you change our hearts. That we would find true fulfillment in our life with you. So, Lord, today as we reflect, we ask that you stir something inside of us that draws us closer to you. As we head to this communion table, we're reminded, Lord, of the great work that you've done in this world for us. And Lord, we just ask that we would find peace in that. Lord, lift up anyone today who has just wrestling inside of their soul that you would meet them, that you would bring peace, that you would give us wisdom, not only as individuals, Lord, but as a community. We love you so much. In your son's name we pray. Amen.